Good morning. Well, what a great morning it's been so far. Um, when I turned up this morning uh, and we were going through our checks and uh, uh, sound check, etc., I went into the kitchen and, and Alan Kendall said to me, Dave, there's something wrong with your eye. And my eye was really red and bloodshot. And Alan said, look, I'll, let me pray for you. Let me just pray that, that there'll be healing. And he prayed for me. And just before the, before the meeting started, I went and looked in the mirror and my eye is completely clear. It's amazing, isn't it? How Jesus is, is at work and he's healing and he's using people to heal in, in whatever minor circumstance. I didn't even know that my eye was red. But yeah, amazing. Well, welcome. We're currently in a series and we've been looking, we're looking at 10 passages in the book of Matthew. We're looking at Jesus' teaching and how it was countercultural. We've looked at what Jesus says about purpose, what he says about our life, what he says about the cost of following him. We've looked at money and sex and power. And today is week seven, and we're going to be looking at what Jesus says about hate. The chapters that much of this series are based on are Matthew chapters five to seven, and, and these are known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew five, verse one, we can read, now when Jesus saw the crowd, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So these three chapters that we're looking at, which we're not looking at all today, you'll be pleased to know, but these chapters are Jesus teaching his disciples about big contentious topics, topics that he knows will be a challenge, both for the disciples at the time when he was preaching, but also for all of us through the ages. You know, n none of the Sermon on the Mount is outdated. Everything is as relevant today as it was back when Jesus was teaching. So if you turn with me to the passage, which is Matthew 5, 38 to 48, it will come up on the screen, and I've asked the wonderful Elsie Brown to come and read it for us. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Excellent. Thank you. Let's pray before we start. 
Father God, meet us here in this place. Meet us, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds for what you want us to learn through your word. Send your spirit to, to speak to us, to, to help us learn so that we can leave this place this morning having a deeper relationship with you and knowing more about you. Amen. In Britain in 2019, over 100,000 hate crimes were recorded. They're just the ones that made it to the justice system. So there were many more that didn't even make it through. A hate crime is, is something that's carried out on, on the basis of race and religion, disability, sexual orientation and transgender identity. They're the five, the five categories. And the offender carries out this crime because, um, because they hate a characteristic about somebody else. Hate is prevalent in our society, I'm sure that you will agree. It's something we all grow up with in our vocabulary. Sometimes we use the word lightly, probably out of context. Sometimes it's completely irrational when we use it. Occasionally, it's justified, such as when we say that we hate evil. Many couples and, and families will have had discussions over time uh, about the use of hate in their day-to-day -day language. Uh, it's a really strong word, and, and it has lots of negative connotations. And um, we don't often want to use it in conversation with our children. So we try to encourage them to use other words or find other ways to, to get across the message, like, I really dislike, or I'm not the greatest fan of. <laughs> You're cooking, Daddy. Or we try to be positive in a negative situation. But for me personally, I think that the word hate should only be used when you genuinely mean it. Like about Marmite. Marmite is, is awful. I hate Marmite. I mean, who in their right mind thought of using a byproduct from, from the brewing process, a brown, gooey substance made of concentrated yeast extract, and then spreading it on your bread or your toast. Yummy. I, <laughs> I won't ask for hands. <laughs> it's awful, isn't it? Even the advertising executives knew that it would be polarizing. Back in the 90s, Marmite, you either love it or you hate it. Don't even get me started on Vegemite. <laughs> One thing I also hate is being called the boss at work. I, went in, I, I was very assertive yesterday at the men's breakfast when John Latreet said to me about being the boss, and I was very clear that I hate being called the boss. But hate's a strong feeling. It's something we're all susceptible to, to some degree. We could ask everyone here. Hopefully, Marmite would be on your list, but there'll be other things that you hate. But what you'll also hopefully have noticed about today's passage that Elsie read is that we're not only looking about what Jesus said about hate. We're also looking at the first five verses in which Jesus addresses retribution, vengeance, revenge. So we're going to look at both of these topics in a minute. But just a bit of background in case you're not familiar with uh, the, the areas of, that Jesus is teaching on. The first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is addressing six areas of the Jewish law which have, over time, been misinterpreted. 
by the Pharisees. They were laws that were generally given to Moses. And either they've restricted the magnitude of what God actually commanded, or they've extended the command past what God had originally intended. So an example is Matthew 5.21. Jesus is talking about, you shall not murder. And the Pharisees had shrank the consequences. Shrank. Shrinked? (laughs) Shrunk. (laughs) The Pharisees had diminished (laughs) the consequences of anything short of murder. So if the person didn't actually die, then they were actually far more lenient in their judgment. Matthew 5.31 highlights the divorce law. And because the the Pharisees had moved the goalposts, you could divorce your wife for almost anything. It It had become like a cruelty towards wives. And you could get divorced for anything, regardless of how trivial. Today we're going to look at the fifth and the sixth of these. The fifth of these is eye for an eye section. And the sixth of these is the hate your enemy section. And both these sections start with, you have heard that it was said. And the disciples would have known the Old Testament law really well because they were Jewish. So they would have grown up learning what the laws are from the Pharisees. And what Jesus is saying would have been radically different to what, the, what their understanding would have been. So the first section we'll look at is verses 38 to 42. And if you like, Jesus is kind of, he's like refocusing our attention on actually what this law says. It's about taking an eye for an eye. And, and uh, if you want to, you can go back to Exodus 21, 24, and you can read the, the original law that was given to Moses. You can also find it in two other places, Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19. And the eye for an eye law was originally, was originally given as a way of limiting retribution. So as humans, we have a tendency to want to, to kind of do more than the person has done to us. So what you might see if you watch football matches, you'll probably have seen this. There's, there's a, like a thirst for retribution on the football pitch. It was like Roy Keane in the 90s. Someone, like, someone comes up and just like clips their ankle or just nudges them over and they fall over. And it's a foul and the referee gives a foul. But the person who's been wronged, my goodness, they're on it. They've got, the red mist has descended. They get up and a couple of minutes later, bam, they've elbowed them in the face. Or they've, there's been a nasty challenge and they've seriously injured them. You see, what's happened is that the act of revenge has far outweighed what the original offense is. And it happens in many areas of life. And we want to seek retribution when we've been wronged. And some of us here today may be thinking, yeah, actually, that, that does sound like me. That does sound like something that, that, that I do. But the law was given to exact proportionate punishment. It was given so that it was an eye for an eye. 
Now, Jesus in verse 39 tells us to do something which is completely uh, not what the culture of his day would endorse. Verse 39 says, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Imagine the disciples who are, who are sat there listening to this. They're probably not nodding their head and going, yeah, amen. They're probably thinking, what? Their eyes, they're probably like the size of CDs. So if you're under 20, a CD is like this thing, it's like, you know, 4.7 inches, you know, round. You know, their eyes are huge. They're probably thinking, what, what on earth? Can you imagine an interjection by one of the disciples? Sorry, Jesus, go, go back a second. Um, what did you just say? Did you say that, that we're not to resist an evil person? Jesus may then go, hold on, chaps, wait there. We've still got a bit more to go here. Because in verse 40, we're talking about being sued, about taking a shirt and a cloak. Verse 41, if you're forced to go one mile, actually go two. Verse 43, uh, sorry, verse 42, give to the one who asks you. All of these are completely countercultural. Now, what I want to make sure is that I want to explain what Jesus is not saying here. By saying, turn the other cheek, Jesus is not saying that we let evil triumph. That is not what Jesus is saying. Because if you look at Jesus' life through the Gospels and what's written about him in the rest of the New Testament, Jesus shows that we should and we must resist evil. In Matthew 21, Jesus overturned the tables in the temple because there were people buying and selling. So he isn't saying, just watch as evil runs rampant. Just stand by. What Jesus also isn't saying is that if someone punches you on the cheek, he's not saying, just stand there. Just take another one. Otherwise, we'd all be walking around with like, real puffy faces, wouldn't we? All the, the Christians would be characterized by like real black eyes because we're just, we're taking a punch and then taking another. That's not what Jesus is saying. The reason we know that is because in John 18, when Jesus uh, is arrested and they're questioning him, the high priests are questioning him in John 18, he was slapped on the face by one of the officials. And if Jesus is actually meaning turn the other cheek, then he wouldn't have said anything. He just kind of would have turned again and waited for the official to slap him. But verse 23 says this. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what's wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Jesus is standing up and saying, no, don't, don't hit me when it's not warranted. He's not, set, he's not turning the other cheek. He's actually standing up to it. Jesus isn't calling us to be a pushover. He's not calling us 
to be trodden over. Jesus doesn't say that we should encourage the thief who is stealing our stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, come over here because this is where I keep the really, really precious jewelry. So you could take that as well if you like. He's not saying that at all. Jesus isn't saying, no, no, don't apprehend the murderer. You know, just turn the other cheek, that's fine. It's important that we understand what Jesus is saying and how the disciples would have been hearing it. So a slap on the cheek in verse 39 would have been massively insulting to the disciples. And what Jesus is saying is, be prepared to take another insult rather than retaliate. Don't try and make things equal by trading insult for insult or punch for punch. Mahatma Gandhi uh, has been attributed with saying, an eye for an eye will only serve to make the whole world blind. Retaliation is not the answer. In verse 40, 40, Jesus refers to a lawsuit about a shirt and cloak. And in the ESV translation, uh, it's a tunic and a cloak. In Exodus 22, you can read about how important the cloak is. It's a garment that you were never to give up. If everything was taken from you and you were stripped, by law, you were, you were able to keep your cloak. That was yours. You were entitled to it and there was nobody who could take it off you. And Jesus is saying, even though we're entitled to retain it by law, be prepared to give it up. Be prepared to give it up. Paul expands on this further in 1 Corinthians 6 and he says that a Christian should prefer to be wronged than enter into a legal battle with a believer. We're pre- we need to be prepared to give up the things that are rightfully ours. It's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? Verse 41 is referring to a Roman soldier who could, at the time, could legally commandeer a civilian could just wander up to someone and say, come here, you, I need you to carry my stuff, okay? We're going to carry it for a mile, all right? Because I'm tired. So the Roman soldier could just commandeer someone. Jesus is encouraging his followers to accept the jobs that they are given without any grumbling. And he's not just saying, accept it. He's saying, actually, Go one mile, but then go a second mile. Do extra, even though that you're not enti- you don't have to, you're not compelled to do it. And in verse 42, Jesus demands that we give and lend willingly and cheerfully. Jesus doesn't want a tight-fisted, penny-pinching attitude towards money. He doesn't want us to be constantly thinking, mm, I wonder what's in it for me. I wonder what I can get out of this. It's an uncomfortable passage, isn't it? In summary, Jesus is saying we we shouldn't retaliate. We should be prepared to give up what's rightfully ours. We should go above and beyond without grumbling. We're to give cheerfully with our money. To me, it sounds like a pretty tough way of living. And as I prepared for today... I found that this message, more than any other message, 
has been really exposing in terms of my attitude towards things. What's my attitude when I'm insulted? How do I react? What's my attitude when I'm wronged? What's my attitude when I'm expected to do things that I really don't want to do? What's my attitude when I'm expected to give financially? When I feel like I just I don't have very much anyway. I don't think I respond how Jesus wants me to. Looking back over the last week, have I responded how Jesus has wanted me to? No. Maybe you're the same, maybe you struggle with those areas as well. And I'm afraid if you weren't sitting comfortably, then the passage doesn't really get any better, I'll be honest. Verses 43 to 48 are equally as challenging. Again, Jesus starts this section the same as the last, and he goes on to address the sixth misinterpretation by the Pharisees. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. See, the Pharisees have taken another Old Testament law and they've, they've twisted it over time. Let's go back to uh, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. This is where this law originally comes from or where it was derived from. It says this, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. See, the Pharisees have twisted it And you might be thinking, Dave, how on earth have you got what the Pharisees said out of that? Well, what the Pharisees did was they took that verse and they looked at the bit that says, anyone among your people. And that's the bit that's been misinterpreted. What they've done is they've said, okay, basically, anyone who's not in your circle, if they aren't among your people, if they aren't your neighbor then you're free to hate them. If they're, not, if they're not in your immediate friendship group, or they're not in your clan, then, then you can hate them. And it's convenient, isn't it? Because we want to define who we have to love. It's difficult to love everyone. And so if we narrow it down, we narrow down the scope of who our neighbor is, then there's a better chance that I'll probably like them all the time. And then I can can be seen to be adhering to this law. A good example of this is in uh, in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. We can read about an expert of the law who stands up to test Jesus. So he's already an expert of the law, so he's just trying to really trip Jesus up, get him to say something wrong. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We get down to verse 29, because Jesus has answered him, and he's not really satisfied with the answer. I feel like he should have stopped while he was ahead, but he kind of poked Jesus. He's like, no, I want to get him to trip up. So he pushes Jesus, verse 29. And who is my neighbor? Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you've read the story of the Good Samaritan, 
then you'll know that it's the most unlikely individual, the Samaritan, who shows mercy and love to his enemy. This parable teaches us that there's no limit to who can be our neighbor. Despite what culture or society tells us, anyone that we come into contact with is our neighbor. So back in today's passage, we've established that we're not actually to hate our enemies. But verse 44 is truly, surely, one of the hardest commands to follow. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So I grew up in Northern Ireland in the late 80s and early 90s. I know, I'm not old enough, but anyway. And the town where I was living, there were bombs going off constantly. There was one day when I was at school and, uh, and suddenly the, the entire building shook and 400 yards away, a bomb had gone off at the local post office and had completely leveled the whole building. It was, like, it was hectic times. I, I don't know how my family slept at night knowing that, that you know, there was this going on. One of my, in one of my RE lessons, my teacher invited a lady to come in and talk to us. She was a dinner lady who'd worked at the school for a number of years, and a few years prior, the IRA had, an IRA sniper had shot her husband. There was no motive, nothing. It was just a sectarian killing. It was just, oh, well, you're a Catholic, you're a Protestant, we're gonna shoot each other. Absolutely no motive. So this lady came into to our lesson and my teacher said, how do you feel towards the people who murdered your husband? Now, you know what answer could have been said. She could have been really, you know, colourful. But her response has struck me for 30 years. She said this, I don't hate them. I feel sorry for them. I love them and I pray for them daily. What remarkable woman. Her husband was taken in awful circumstances. Her response probably quite legitimately, could have been hatred towards her enemies. And the world we live in would say that she has every right to hate them. But instead, she chose to obey Jesus' command. And it's the word love here that I want to finish with today. Because it's the word love that I want us to understand the meaning of. In Greek, there are four words which are translated into our word of love. There's storge, which is like a brotherly, sisterly type affection. There's eros, which is a romantic love. There's phileia, which is more around like military, sports team, camaraderie. And there's agape. And it's this agape love which is used in Matthew 5:43 and 44, and a lot of the way through the Old, uh, New Testament. And this agape love has no way, it is in no way related to the lovability of the individual. No way related to the individual and their lovability. You see, this love that the, late, that the, the dinner lady was displaying towards her enemies 
She had, she had no reason to love them. They had nothing appealing. She loved them in spite of this. And this agape love is, is how God looks on us. God looks on us today and we are filthy and we are wretched. There is nothing lovable about us. But yet God loves us. God loves us with agape love. He loves us with agape love so much that he sent his son to die for us so that we might be in relationship with him. People say love is blind and I praise Jesus for that because my wife still loves me. (laughs) But agape love isn't blind. Agape love is the complete opposite. It sees everything. Isn't that more amazing? Agape love that God shows us is just completely unwarranted. And yet he still loves us and this is the basis of the command in Matthew 5.44. And so, our application today, it would be easy to have a, do's, a list of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that. Think about this. But we're gonna... We're going to have communion because there's no better way of, of reflecting on today and about how God loves us than to come to the cross, come to the place where Jesus died. There's no better way for us to reflect on how much God has loved us, even despite how filthy we are. It's this agape love that he shows towards us.